Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our study in the book of John with a series called The Crossroad. And today, Dr. Newfeld will bring us a message entitled Following the Light. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Years ago, Kathy and I and our family, well, we took a vacation in which we went down a cave deep under the earth. It was huge, like standing in a massive cathedral far underneath the earth's surface. And it was vast and extremely beautiful with rock formations filled with colors. Now, the tour guide had warned us that before going down that they would turn out the lights and that there under the earth, there would be no shaft of light, none whatsoever. And I'll never forget that experience. I've never experienced such darkness was a darkness that could be felt. I put my hand right up to my face and I saw absolutely nothing, not even a shade as it passed my eyes. I began to wonder what it must have been like for the first explorers of that cave. What kind of light did they have? Did the flickering light that guided them ever go out? And what absolute terror that must have caused? You know, my mind simply couldn't grasp such an experience. The beauty of that cave and all its amazing stones and colors, well, they all disappeared against the oppression of the dark. And after some time standing in such complete blackness, well, suddenly the lights were turned back on. It was absolutely brilliant as shafts of light shot out with amazing speed that pierced the darkness and in its brilliant supremacy, the darkness fled to the light. Wow. You know, we live in a world and a culture of ever-increasing moral and spiritual darkness. In a society like ours, which has gone so long without a great spiritual awakening, becomes increasingly dark. And like people living in a cave so far beneath the surface of the earth, we can't see. We grope around trying to find our way. And eventually, we don't know where we are or where we're going. We're lost. And finally, we become familiar with darkness, and any light hurts our eyes, and we run from it. In the end, we're utter strangers to the light. What are Christians to do about darkness? Should we seek to understand it? Should we curse it? Should we simply live out our own light inside of ourselves? I mean, what is our response? Let me ask you a series of questions. When someone at your job or in your school comes back from Las Vegas, and they boast about the good time they've had, what should you do or say? When someone has had an abortion and others congratulate her for her courageous decision over her own body, what should you say? When someone celebrates getting high on smoking marijuana, what, what should you do? When someone moves in with their girlfriend or boyfriend, what do you do? When someone boasts about bringing something through the customs border and they haven't paid duty, what do you do? When someone counsels about how to get around declaring your income taxes, what do you say then? When someone calls in sick at work in order just to get some time off, how do you respond? When someone celebrates a homosexual union, what then? If you learn wisdom, if you learn to follow the light in a world of darkness, you'll have to learn to know what to do. So let me give you a little hint. If there is light, well, you can't defeat it by turning on darkness. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can't destroy the gospel with darkness. Darkness only reigns when the light is turned off. But if there is darkness, you can utterly defeat it by turning on the light. So let's go to our text. I'm reading John 8, 12 to 20. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You know, according to verse 20, Jesus is standing in the treasury of the temple. Now, this treasury was in the court of women. It was a large court and was one of the busiest courts of the temple. On the one side of that court, there were 13 great treasure chests where you could deposit your money. The money in the temple treasure chests were there because they promoted giving for the upkeep of the temple. In the center of that treasury, there were four great torches set up. You know, some accounts say that the torches were as high as the highest wall of the temple. They were, in fact, huge golden candelabras. At the top of each candelabrum would have been a huge bowl which held about 65 liters of oil. There was a ladder for each candelabrum, and in the evening, during the Feast of Booths, young healthy priests would carry the oil to the top, fill the bowls, and then light the wicks. The great flames that leapt out of those torches were spectacular because, you know, as you can imagine, there were no electric lights in those days, and when darkness settled over the city, it would have been extremely dark. It was said in those days that the light from those four massive torches not only lit up the temple, but its light was seen all over Jerusalem. It must have been spectacular. Those torches were lit during the Feast of Booths, and they were to remind Israel of the wilderness wanderings. Listen to Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38, what it says happened after Israel finished building the tabernacle. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the cloud and the fire came out of it by night, and was the presence of God. And that's the image. So imagine living during the time of Moses. You simply looked over to the tabernacle, and there was God's presence over it in a cloud. And then as nightfall came, a huge cloud of fire lighting up the tabernacle, and the entire camp of Israel was right there. So where's God? Well, he's right there. His presence is among us. Now imagine Jesus standing in the temple against the background of those massive candelabras, which represent the cloud of fire in the desert, that have just a few days ago reminded all Israel that God was with them. And then he says to the crowds that we're going to put offering into the temple. He says, I am the light of the world. It's amazing. What's he saying? 
I think he's announcing good news, good news to a world filled with darkness. So what's the news? Well, it's this. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Now, I've mentioned before that the Gospel of John contains seven I am sayings. That is, seven times in this book, Jesus begins a saying with the words, I am, and then he makes a statement about himself. Back in John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Now, here in John 8, we have the second of these sayings, I am the light of the world. So again, what does he mean? Well, he means that the cloud of fire that hung over the camp of Israel in the desert, that cloud was the reality of the presence of God. And Jesus is saying that he is the glory of God shining into this dark world. He is God come to us clothed in human flesh, but he has come to a world that is dark with sin, and he has come to give light. Now think about it. What are the greatest tragedies in this world? It's, it's not wars. It's not violence. It's not hate. It's not even moral relativism. I mean, all those are sad, but none of these compare with the greatest tragedy. The great tragedy is that human beings created in the image of God, created to know God, don't know who he is. The greatest problem in our country today is that people don't know the creator. The good news is that when we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. He is the true picture of God. And that's the grand revelation. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. And once we see that, everything else becomes visible as well. That is, Jesus delivers from sin and is the source of the world's spiritual truth. He is moral certainty in a world filled with darkness. All of that's contained in the image of light. But here's what I'm sure of. Until you have the light of Jesus, you'll not know that you need deliverance from sin. Until you have the light of Jesus, you'll not know spiritual truth. You'll not know right from wrong. Jesus is light. So here's the good news. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is to say, if Jesus guides you, you will forever leave this world of darkness. Have you heard? Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are inviting you on a cruise. February 7th to the 16th, 2020, we'll be setting sail for the Southern Caribbean. And we want you to join us for a nine-night cruise adventure that will leave you not only physically refreshed, but spiritually as well. Experience ports of call, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. Dr. John Newfeld will be joining us, providing amazing Bible teaching that will inspire and deepen your walk with Jesus. Phil Calloway will lift your spirits and perhaps make you laugh in a way you've never laughed in years, and be encouraged by the music of friends Shane and Angela Weeb. It's a fantastic opportunity for a vacation while experiencing great Bible teaching, laughter, and fellowship. So for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebibletours.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebibletours.ca. For Israel in the wilderness, I mean, the idea of following, well, that was a simple concept. They set up camp and every morning they would look over at the tabernacle. 
And if the cloud was settled over the tabernacle, they settled in for a regular day. See, they made breakfast or lunch and supper, and they gathered manna. They fixed their tents and took care of whatever livestock they might have had. But if the cloud lifted up, well, they'd get busy. They'd pull up their tents, and they'd get into their divisions, and they'd go wherever the cloud would take them. See, it was that simple. God told you where to go, and you simply followed him. Well, can it really be that easy for us? The image of following Jesus is a rich image. You know, in the Greek language, it could refer to at least five different images. You know, first it was used of a soldier following his commander. That meant following him on a march or following him into battle. And as every soldier will tell you, an army is only successful if the soldiers instinctively follow every single order. See, if they hesitate or question the commander's commands, they're going to be defeated. That's the picture of Christ. He demands obedience. He commands we obey. Secondly, there's an image of a slave following his master. It means service and sacrifice. To follow is to serve. Thirdly, it can mean following a wise counselor's advice. So to follow means that we accept his counsel in terms of how we are to live our lives. Fourthly, it can mean the laws of the state. To follow means to obey what is written in the Word of God. And finally, it can mean to follow the gist of a line of reasoning. To follow means to understand the meaning of what Jesus teaches. You know, it's these five things, obedience, service, receiving direction for living, searching out the Bible and attempting to understand. Jesus makes an offer, follow the light. Jesus says, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. There's a certainty that's going to be yours. While others struggle with moral uncertainty and about what's right and what's wrong, you're going to have confidence. So if you're dating someone, well, you'll know what sexual purity looks like. If you're married, well, you'll know what faithfulness looks like following the example of Christ and his church. If you have a job, you'll know that to serve your employer is like serving Christ. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you know that your high task is to disciple a new generation to serve Christ. If you're out of a job, you'll know that your task is to trust Christ in your finances. That is, your task is to learn faith. I mean, I could go on and on, but please notice this. People who follow Christ have a quiet confidence in their lives. They know who they are. They're confident that Christ has placed them where they are for a reason, and they know where they're going. And hear me, that's attractive. It's light. But notice what Jesus says. He says of the person that follows, he or she will have the light of life. See, I ought to know that nothing grows in dark caves. Nothing lives in complete darkness. Life and light are connected. And the life of Jesus speaks of his abundance of life that comes from God. Now, that's the announcement that Jesus made in the temple. And as he does so, the Pharisees, well, they respond in anger. They say, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And they're stating an Old Testament principle. That is, in a trial, you need at least two witnesses to substantiate a case. And so why should they listen to him? There are no corroborating witnesses. Essentially, that's still the argument today. I mean, why listen to Jesus? I mean, he's only one voice, and there are so many other voices. He's not the light. He's simply one opinion among many. Now, look at Jesus' response in verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, 
and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So I hope you hear that. Jesus has been saying that he came from God's presence. He had forever existed in God's presence. He was entirely conscious of that. He knew the glories of heaven. He knew of the creation of the world. He knew of the eternal plan of the Father. And he had come to present evidence of what he had seen in God's presence. So, in fact, when the Pharisees tell Jesus that he's only one witness and no court accepts only one witness, Jesus responds by saying that may be. But every court listens to testimony to hear what it has to say. So here's the first note of those who struggle with doubt. Listen to what Jesus actually says. You see, it simply will not do to say, well, there are a lot of religious teachers in the world. Well, Jesus didn't claim to be a religious teacher. He claimed that he'd always existed in God's presence and that he had come out of God's presence to bear witness to what he had seen and heard. So at least consider that. But Jesus goes on. Verse 15 says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Now, in essence, what Jesus is next charging the Pharisees with doing is, well, making a superficial judgment about him. This is what the Pharisees would say about Jesus. They'd say, well, he comes from Nazareth. I mean, no prophet comes from there. And his dad was just a poor carpenter. He hasn't even been formally trained in theology. I mean, all of that was a superficial judgment. So Jesus says in response that he does not judge anyone, at least not in that way. So now, here's the second word to those who struggle with doubt. You need to go beyond surface judgments. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So you'll notice that Jesus is saying that there's a second witness after all, and that second witness is the Father. It is the witness of what God is saying about him. And to that, the Pharisees sneer. I mean, they say, where is your father? In other words, they're saying, if God's your witness, why don't you just produce him? Well, interestingly enough, that same conversation had happened about a year prior to that with probably the same group of people. John 5, 36 says, Jesus is speaking, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, he's already said, you can see the Father through what I'm doing. When he healed a man who was an invalid for 38 years, was not that the witness of the Father? I mean, who's ever been like Jesus? I mean, he made the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walked, the dead were raised, the demon-possessed were free. People were dramatically changed. When the Pharisees said, I mean, go ahead and produce the Father as a witness, Clearly, they hadn't been paying attention. So if you struggle with doubt, let me suggest some counsel. You need to pay attention to the evidence. Is it really true that Jesus did all these miracles? And what's more, that he died on a cross and that three days later he rose from the dead? Now, if you're serious about those questions, why not pick up a little book by Lee Strobel entitled The Case for Easter? I challenge you to read it. I challenge you, is this not the light that has come into the world? Now, of course, the religious leaders catch none of that. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. That's why people walk in darkness. It's not just that they haven't been introduced to the light. It's because they prefer darkness. Why won't the religious teachers consider that Jesus can cast out demons and heal the blind and the lame and the crippled and the lepers? 
He can order nature that does his bidding. He can raise the dead, and yet they don't believe. Why don't they believe? Listen, this is crucial. Christianity is not about morality. Christianity is not about different opinions on human sexuality. Christianity is not about different approaches to religion. Christianity, in its essence, is about Jesus. And it turns out that the religious teachers hated Jesus Christ. That's why they weren't persuaded by the miracles. Their hatred of him left them in darkness and blinded their eyes to the miracles that should have persuaded them. If these leaders had, on the other hand, loved God, well, if they had, they would have recognized Jesus in an instant. God has come to us. Well, now, isn't that the same with all of us? What shall we love? If it's darkness we love, we'll see Jesus as an intrusion, and we'll hate him. If you love darkness, you're going to hate the light, and you're going to seek to put the light out. That's why they crucified Jesus in his day, and that's why he would still be crucified if he came into this world today. But let's also be clear. Jesus is the light that has come into the world so that if you look to him, suddenly the darkness will be chased away and the light will come and you will be taken from the world of darkness to a world where you can see the action of the Father. What a glorious truth. What a glorious promise. John, it seems that as we have this conversation today that, you know, us deciding on Jesus, uh, the darkness that we're talking about can both be moral and uh, intellectual. Yeah, I know that there are, you know, a lot of things we simply don't know or questions that we still have. And sure, intellectual questions have to be taken seriously. But we have to also come to terms with our moral culpability in rejecting Jesus. I mean, Jesus just meddles with everything in our lives, and should we surrender to him, well, he's going to ask us to surrender everything into his hands and follow him. So failure to take that into account when we deal with the intellectual questions that we have is really a failure to deal with, with a key issue. Christ calls upon us to renounce our sin and to follow him. And that creates, I mean, as we know, it creates so many difficulties. So we must answer the intellectual questions, but we have to come to terms with this moral darkness within each one of us. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue in the book of John, the series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and the limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.